Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. So we're looking at eating and drinking at the moment. Um, and today I want to talk about a particularly famous meal. There's been lots of famous meals throughout history that have sort of, you know, changed the course of history. Um, about 115 years ago, there was a dinner party at Government House in Toowoomba where the chef didn't have anything for dessert. A French guy by the name of Armand Golland, I think that's how you pronounce it. If anyone's French here and I've mispronounced it, if there's more to be more of a Golland there, then let me know. But Armand Golland, he uh, didn't have anything for dessert, so he got a bit of cake, covered it in chocolate and dipped it in coconut. And the lamington was born. And this changed the course of history here in Australia. Um, there's been many dinners like this. There was another one back in 1966 at a TV producer by the name of Joan Curry. She had a dinner party with some friends and someone spoke about how their little child liked to get up early in the morning and just watch the blank signal and TV screen. And they got thinking and thought, well, why don't we make a TV program aimed for kids and we'll put it on early in the morning. And so Sesame Street was born. Another monumental time in history. Uh, And more recently, on the 15th of November 2020, there was another monumental historical meal, which was the very last meal at a Sizzler restaurant here in Australia. Um, It closed, sadly. So um, you have to get your pan bread and your sloppy dessert somewhere else now. But each of these meals have been significant moments in history. Um, But there is one meal, of course, that probably... Um, is the most significant meal of history, well, definitely the most significant meal of history and the most famous, and that is the Last Supper, the final meal Jesus ate with his disciples before his crucifixion. And every week, if not every day, this meal is celebrated by millions of people all around the world. So we're going to look at this uh, story, first of all, uh, in our Bibles. So we're going to look at uh, the version in Mark chapter 14, And from verse 12, it'll be on the screen so you can read along, we're going to read. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. And when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
Now, there's no denying why the Lord's Supper or communion, as it's also remembered, is the most celebrated of all meals in history. The reason is simple. The Lord's Supper celebrates God saving us from our sins, God saving us from our bad decisions, from our greed, hatred, jealousy, envy, and lust. God's ultimate act of redemption, sending his son to die in our place so that we could be with God forever. I mean, you attach that to a meal and it's always going to be the most significant meal in history, isn't it? Lamington's and Sesame Street and Sizzler don't stand a chance by comparison. This is without a doubt the most significant meal in history. Now, the Lord's Supper, as we read in the Bible just then, occurred over a Passover meal, which is called, also called the Seder. Now, the Seder is the meal that is eaten amongst families during the Passover festival that celebrates or remembers uh, the delivery of the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And you can read this story in the book of Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 12, we read God's instruction to the people of Israel through Moses regarding the Seder meal. So in verse 25, it says this, When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. Now it is no coincidence that Jesus' last meal before his crucifixion was the Seder. The Seder, like the entire Old Testament, points to Jesus. Now, there are multiple vivid images in the Passover Seder that show that God's plan all along was not just to save the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt, but to through them in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus save everyone from the ultimate slavery of sin. However, probably the most vivid image in the Passover meal or the Seder is that of the Passover lamb. Now, this Passover lamb was nurtured and grew in the family's home. It was kept close to the family. It slept snuggled up inside with the kids for the duration of its life. It was a special little lamb. It was without blemish and without fault. And then at Passover, the family killed it and its blood was spilled and painted on wooden doorposts of the home in order to allow God's judgment to pass over the family. Their sin was passed over or forgiven by the sacrifice of this spotless little lamb. So God chooses this same meal, the Seder, as the final meal for Jesus before his crucifixion. Jesus, without blemish and from within the Father's home, is given as the ultimate sacrifice. His blood smeared on wooden posts so that whoever comes to him will also have their sins forgiven or passed over. Jesus himself spells this out the night before he dies. In the account of the Last Supper in Matthew 26 and from verse 26, we read this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. This is amazing and perfect imagery. God uses the Seder meal 
to illustrate what Jesus is about to do. And it also provides a perfect example of how God's plan for salvation has been present since the very beginning of history. Everything has pointed towards Jesus and the sacrifice that he's going to make here. However, in my opinion, this is not the only reason why God used a meal to commemorate God's ultimate act of saving us, his ultimate rescue. After all, he's God. He could have chosen anything. He could have chosen like just a little token or a speech or a ceremony, but no, he chooses a meal. Now, I believe there are reasons for this that go beyond just the rich imagery that we have within the Seder meal, and I'm going to get to that. But before I do, I want to show you a picture. So you may have seen this picture before. This is a painting by Leonardo da Vinci called The Last Supper. And for those of you who have heard me preach before, you would know that I'm not a fan of Leonardo's art. Now, that's not to say that he's not a great artist. My problem with Leonardo's art is that I don't like his depictions of Jesus. Jesus always looks like a shampoo hair model who wears curtains and has skin the color of milk. And that's fine if that's what Jesus was. But Jesus was a Middle Eastern man who labored in his youth and through his young adulthood as a carpenter, that guy doesn't look like he's even picked up a spanner. He didn't know what to do with it. He'd faint if you pulled it out, you know. So that's my problem with Leonardo's art. I'll just get that off my chest. But look, I'm not going to criticize his depictions of Jesus. That's not why I brought it up here. I just thought I'd chuck that in. But what I want to do is I want to look at um, the historical accuracy or inaccuracy of this painting. That's not to say it's not a great painting. If you like it, please don't be too offended. If you got it on a tea towel when you went to Milan, great. You can still use it. But the reason why this is historically inaccurate is not because Leonardo didn't know the, the accuracies of the Passover meal. It's the style of art that it is. It's Renaissance art. And what was popular with Renaissance art was that you would get a scene from antiquity and then you would set it in modern times. So here he's taken a scene from 28 AD approximately and he has put it in his modern times, which was the late 15th century. So it'd be like if we decided to paint the Last Supper uh, in our times and what we would have is we'd have them wearing jeans and they'd have their phones on the table. That's how they liked art back then. They liked to have scenes from history depicted in a modern way. But this isn't what it would have actually been like they would have been sitting around a low-lying table, probably on cushions, and Jesus and his disciples would have been using their hands in terracotta pottery, and they probably had some sort of lamb stew with some bread and some wine and a dessert probably of nuts and fruit called karoset. But the main historical difference that I'd like to highlight here is that the Passover Seder is actually a family meal. Now, generally, the Seder was celebrated by entire families, there are some people missing from this picture. And I would say 50% of you sitting here recognize straight away who's missing from the picture here. Where are the ladies? And where are the children? And who cooked the Passover meal? If you read in, in the story in Mark, they go away and they come back and the Passover meal, voila, it's there. Um, that's because it was cooked by the other people in the family. How it would have actually been was that, um, yeah, Mary or someone would have, would have cooked the meal for them. Now, the other thing I want to point out here as well is that 
I've actually been to quite a few seders and the actual form or traditions of the seder uh, are designed so as to include children specifically as well. So I want to show you another photo. This is my son Abel and that's my daughter Emanuela and that's my wife Skye. And I want to draw your attention to Abel. He is particularly excited here and that's because he's just got himself 20 bucks. Um, he's only four there, so that's, that's a lot of money when you're four years old. I remember when I was uh, in primary school, I won a voucher at the school canteen for $2. And that lasted me all term back then. Um, and I thought I'd hit the jackpot, so I can't imagine getting 20 smackers in my hands like that. No wonder his face is lit up. Now, the reason he has this, this was a Seder meal last year. And there's a part of the meal where at the very beginning, the host of the meal, which is his grandfather and my father-in-law, he gets a piece of bread which is unleavened, so it's flat, it's like a biscuit. The way it's cooked is that it's, it's got these stripes on it and it's pierced, it's got little holes in it. And it's one piece and it's broken into three. And one of those pieces is wrapped in linen and then hidden somewhere around the house. Hopefully and maybe you haven't, but there's a whole bunch of little clues as to maybe what this little piece of bread is about, right? The striped, pierced bit of bread was part of three, separated out, hidden in linen for a time. Towards the end of the meal, the host of the meal says, right, our kids, go and find the bread. And if you find the bread, you get to come back to the host of the meal and you get to uh, negotiate with him for him to buy it back off you. And so Abel found it. And he carried it triumphantly. I've never seen him walk so quickly with his chest so far out. Carried it to his granddad and gave it to him. And, uh, and his granddad said, okay, righto, I want that piece of bread. How much, how much will you take for it? And because I had primed my children in the car on the way over, he said, 100 bucks. <laughs> I told him, you start high, buddy. <laughs> you start high. Anyway, he got down to $20, which is pretty good. I wouldn't have taken less than 50 but he's still learning. He's only four, so $20. He was pretty excited. Now, the reason I share this story is because I wanted to highlight that this is a specific activity of the Seder meal that is designed to involve children. Now, this is not to say that Jesus didn't have special conversations and discussions with his 12 disciples at the Last Supper. I'm sure he did, and we've got that in great detail in the accounts of the Gospels. But I just want to draw your attention to the fact that the meal itself would have been a boisterous family affair. Children would have been playing and making a mess. Husbands and wives would have been laughing and joking. Food would be everywhere. The room would be packed. You wouldn't be able to move. Mary would have cooked the meal with her friends for Jesus and his friends and their family. And in the midst of this messy, noisy dinner, Jesus says, remember what I am about to do for you. A noisy, messy dinner full of laughter and family and friends becomes a celebration that Jesus ordains to remember his sacrifice. So this brings me to the other reason why I believe God chooses a meal to remember his sacrifice. Aside from the amazing, rich, divine imagery in the Passover Seder, God chooses a meal in part, I believe, to remind us of what we have been saved for. We have been saved 
for relationship. And when we sit and eat and drink together, it's like God is providing us with a picture or a taste of what we have been saved for. It's like God is saying, remember, I saved you for this. I saved you for perfect, joyful, unbroken relationship. I saved you for this with me. I saved you for sweet, unbroken relationship with me. Genesis 1.1 tells us that in the beginning, God. And Genesis 1.2 speaks of God's Holy Spirit being there too. And then in John 1, we hear that in the beginning with God was Jesus. So right from the beginning of everything was God, and God in three persons, Father, Spirit, and Son. Now this is a crazy concept for us to get ahead around, right? Now there are not three gods here. God is not like a earthworm that's been split into three by a, by a spade. It's, it's God in three persons. Now, a helpful way of understanding for this is for me to consider my human form, if I can look at the next slide, as being one-dimensional. So that's me, and then there's God, and his form is three-dimensional. It's kind of like God has a three-dimensional or more complex personhood than me. And in this trinity, God is in perfect relationship with himself. God is in perfect relationship with himself. That's a thought to get your head around, isn't it? God is in perfect relationship with himself. Now, while initially this might sound really confusing, grasping this truth is key to us understanding what our salvation and redemption is all about. Let me try and explain. This is a picture of Jesus by Rembrandt. This is another picture of Jesus. The next slide is a picture of God the Father. And the last one I want to show you is another picture of God the Father. It looks a bit papal, but that's the picture someone thought of God the Father. Now, when you look at all these pictures, some of them you might like, some of them you might not, and that's fine. That's art. But if you didn't know any better, you would think that God doesn't know how to smile, right? You'd feel like he's one of those those people in your family, like, you know, that uncle or that cousin who when you take a family photo is never smiling, always has an awkward look on their face. He seems a bit serious and a bit lonely. This guy looks lonely. Just got his ball and his statues and that's it. But this is not what God is like. God is not lonely and morose. God is a trinity. Three persons in loving and joyful relationship with each other. A relationship so intimate and wonderful and perfect that it's also one and not just three parts. Now, I know this is confusing and hang in there, but I feel like if God didn't stretch our brains, then he probably isn't God, right? And his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and that's part of him being God. So let me try another picture. We'll look at the next work of art. God is like a family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but a family that is full of joy and love and peace and commitment. I don't know if you've ever been amongst a family like this. I have a few times. And when you're around a family like this, you long to be part of it, just to sit there with them. The relationships that they enjoy with each other, the security and the belonging that they have, it's inviting. You want to be there. And that's a bit what God is like. You see, God is in perfect relationship 
with himself. He's not a needy teenage boyfriend desperately looking for someone to tell him how wonderful he is. He's not. God is the embodiment or fulfillment of perfect relationship. And this is what he invites us to. This is what he has saved us for. Sometimes when I'm at home and it's dinner time, it's quite crazy at my house at dinner time. We have four little children and it can be quite busy. But sometimes at dinner time, Sky will be in the kitchen and she'll be doing something to get dinner ready. And I'll take whatever's in her hands out of her hands and I will take her in my arms and I will kiss her. Yes, I am really that romantic. And sometimes I'll hold her for a long time and kiss her for a long time too. And when this happens, often what then happens next is I feel these little arms and legs wedging themselves between us. And I'll look down and there generally will be my oldest daughter, Audrey, who's five, and she'll look up at me with a huge smile on her face. And what we do at this point is we don't shoo her away. We don't kick her off like a little yappy dog. Generally, I'll pick down and pick her up and then we'll all embrace together. She's in the middle of us and she squeals with delight. She loves it. She loves it. This is what God invites us to. He invites us to be part of his perfect relationship. He invites us to be swept up into his loving embrace, to be part of his family. This is the story of what God has done for us. So when we eat together in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us, we remember that we have been swept up into his family. We remember that he has invited us into the loving, perfect, unbroken relationship that he has always enjoyed. So what better way to remember what we have been saved for than a meal together? And not only that, what better way to show others what we have been saved for than a meal together? If you want your friends and family to know what Jesus is calling them into, then invite them into your home. Prepare a meal. Pray and commemorate Jesus' death on the cross and then eat together. Give them a taste of what God has saved us for. Give them a taste of sweet, joyful relationship of being in the presence of God. As I said, I have four little children at home. So we're in a season where it's difficult for us to go out. My oldest child is seven. My youngest one is two. And I have two in the middle that are five. And so aside from the babysitting logistics of going out of an evening, by the time 8 p.m. rolls around, we're just tired. I just want to go to bed. So we can't get out a great deal of an evening. But what we firmly believe is that God has called us to use our home to be a place where people encounter God. We mightn't be able to go out, but we can certainly bring people in. And we believe that our table is a place to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And we believe that by sitting at our table, people can discover what God has done for them and have a taste of what he has saved them for. I'll say that again. We believe that by sitting at our table, people can discover what God has done for them and have a taste of what God has saved them for. Now, you don't need to be married to do this. You don't need to have kids. You don't need to even be a good cook. 
I felt the sweet joy of communion in a share house with single guys where beer bottles decorated the wall and the lounge room is just a mismatch of whatever free lounges were going on Gumtree. I have felt the communion of God in a house like that. I have felt it in homes where the food is burnt and bland at very best, right? And I'm not going to name names. But the key here is relationship. Relationship with God being remembered and then reflected at the table. Relationship with God being remembered and then reflected at the table. I'm going to invite the musicians up and we're going to move into a time of communion now. We're at the end of our challenge and I would like us to make a decision to use our table to remember and reflect our restored relationship with God. And as we take this time of communion, I want us to prayerfully consider what we're going to change in our week and in our lives to bring more people into our table where they can be part of this remembering and reflecting what God has done for us. We've got to reclaim the uh, power and divine nature of eating and drinking together because it's a force that historically has changed the world. And as a church, we need to reclaim it again. So what we're going to do is I'm just going to um, pray and we're going to take those two elements together. God, thank you for your relationship, Lord. Thank you that you are in a perfect relationship. You are perfect relationship, Lord. And you invite us into that. Lord, what a joy. Thank you for the price you paid so that we could, Lord. And right now when we've got these two elements, Lord, before we take them, before we pick them up or anything, I just want to pray over our time together, Lord. Would you bless right now the time we have around the table together? This moment would we not only remember but reflect what you've done and what you're like. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. You're the God of relationship, of right, perfect, whole relationship. So what we're going to do, guys, is we're going to take communion together. So the band's going to play so there's background noise so it's not awkward for you and you're just going to take communion together. You're just going to do it together. Someone can pray over the bread. Someone can pray over the juice. You can pray for each other. Just have it together. It's as simple and as straightforward as that. You don't have to do anything too ceremonial. You can if you want, but do it together. And let's remember and reflect what God saved us for. Mm-hmm.